Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mind on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And my guest today is once again, Nina Naran. Nina is a licensed social worker, as well as a primary therapist at Penn Medicine Princeton House Behavioral Health in Hamilton, New Jersey. Today, Nina and I discuss how she works with LGBT youth in the therapy setting. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast and find it helpful. You had talked about like how all this stuff can kind of weigh on these um, people that you're treating, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the sense of hopelessness, um, etc. Et Not feeling like they have a life worth living. Mm-hmm. So, like, what do you try to? How do you work with that as a clinician? So, I'd say that part of how I work in supporting teens in this community who find themselves, you know, having a lot of fear, a lot of hopelessness, Mm -hmm. you know, in some ways it's, it's very much how you would treat any patient uh, reporting similar symptoms. You want to make sure that, you know, you're supporting them in feeling grounded and safe. You want to help them in checking the facts, making sure that, you know, they're perception is matching their reality, even if it can be minute to minute, hour by hour, uh, if we can't feel, you know, safe as a society or as a societal group, can we feel safe for the next 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. Um, And using that as something that can support their stabilization. We want to support them in, you know, doing some behavioral activation. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, are we challenging ourselves to uh, maybe not only identify that hopelessness or helplessness, um, but use it to motivate us into action. If we are able to do that, that's something that can be really effective in helping challenge some of the narratives of powerlessness mm-hmm. uh, that we're internalizing. It's also helpful, uh, you've already mentioned this, but it's also extremely helpful to get them connected to a wider community. Yeah. Um, you know, whenever, one one of the benefits of, some of the groups that I run is, you know, very inadvertently, you know, we certainly don't screen for, um, you know, sexual orientation or gender identity. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes, you know, we just simply receive the patients that we receive mm-hmm. based on their based on their clinical presentation. Um, but oftentimes, um, I suppose not terribly surprising, we usually have quite a overlap of kids experiencing you know, mental health challenges or needing this additional support as, and these these gender or, you know, sexuality diverse identities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the group itself in some ways can become a supportive environment. Um, obviously, the treatment team plays a role in becoming part of that supportive environment. And then something that I also try to emphasize, um, not only for the teens themselves, but also to their family if they're open to it, uh, is getting that teen connected with a greater community outside of the therapeutic space. Yeah. So that might look like getting them connected with a support group that they can continue to see uh, after discharge. That mm-hmm. could look like having them investigate resources through their school, um, which oftentimes many schools will have some some version of a group for for this reason. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, since the pandemic, we have 
now more accessible than before, certainly, um, even virtual support groups for um, LGBT teens. So, you know, it's not only about it's not only about their unique identity, but it's um, their, you know, their unique gender sexuality identity. Mm-hmm. But it's also about things that we would do for for any patient like this, you yeah, know, totally challenging. Yeah, challenging some of their um, challenging some of what has been ineffective and mm-hmm. helping replace those things with a better, more effective, sustainable structure. Yeah, I, I mean, if I was going to ask 10 clinicians to uh, write like a treatment plan for a client struggling with depression, I think the three things you just mentioned would would show up, uh, even if it was, you know, whatever, let's say any, it was 100 different clients experiencing uh, moderate to severe depression. These Those three things would be on the treatment plan, regardless of who they are, who they loved, what they look like, etc. But it's basically cognitive restructuring, um, behavioral activation, and like increasing your support network is, I think, what I heard you say. Like, it's those three things. So it's just funny that like, once we drill down to like the mental health interventions, I guess you could, you could call them for, Mm -hmm. uh, for any issue, regardless of the population that we're talking about, it, it sort of goes back always winds up going back to the basics. Like that's going to look a little bit different maybe depending on who each patient is. So like for this population, you said like, you know, becoming involved in LGBT support group or something like that um, would like meet that social support need uh, or maybe even that behavioral activation need. And then maybe like that, that general feeling of feeling unsafe uh, because of the stuff that you're seeing online or in the news, like, that sort of cognitive restructuring, like, okay, well, where am I right now? Can I feel safe for the next 10 minutes? Uh, And then trying to um, sort of incorporate that into your mindset. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those, those are definitely, um, you know, those are definitely, I would kind of identify as like, let's call it maybe some of the scaffolding of Mm, treatment. mm, Yes. Um, For, you know, for the specific for the specific population, um, there are of course going to be maybe some particular, um, some particular topics that come up in treatment that mm-hmm. that may be a little bit more population specific. So mm-hmm. um, I can just give a few examples. There's there's a pretty high, let's say, uh, comorbidity or co-occurrence of um, you know having mood disorders, having um, you know, depression, ADHD, bipolar, and the occurrence of disordered eating, um, mm-hmm. or I, I kind of just call with my kids like body issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've seen that definitely, I think, a lot with this population. Um, and there are particular reasons for that. You know, there's different portrayals of how how people look in in the media. You know, we have more LGBT, visibly LGBT or self-identifying LGBT individuals than ever openly out in the media. Mm. And the overwhelming majority of them are, um, are white, are thin, um, are, you know, specifically for, for gay men, they're usually like, you know, ripped, very Mm -hmm. strong muscles, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, And things which are, you know, not kind of the average person. What I've seen quite a bit actually is quite an overlap with um, my LGBT kids having a lot of difficulties around their their bodies, 
um, that do result in disordered eating, mm -hmm. over-exercising, restricting behaviors, um, binge purging behaviors. So, you know, given that that is something that, you know, it's, it's certainly not a given that that will appear. And I will say that there is a, at least in my anecdotal experience, a higher than not likelihood of that coming up. Mm -hmm. um, it is, you know, helpful to, you know, essentially have an idea of, okay, well, how are we going to work with, you know, as, as we know, and, you know, as we know, in the outpatient setting, it's, it's, it's usually never just one straightforward thing, right? It's never just depression. It's also, it can also be, maybe there's trauma. It can also mm -hmm. be, maybe there's substance use, maybe sure. there's um, body issues. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's helpful for, um, it's helpful for us to stay flexible and kind of on our toes in addressing, you know, with the co current cohort that we have for this cohort of, you know, XYZ population in this case, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like queer population for this cohort, what do they need and what, what kind of education can we provide? What kind of interventions can we apply at not only, of course, the individual level in which we're engaging this, these treatment plan interventions anyways, but uh, at the group level in terms of education, in terms of, you know, discussing or dissecting as a group um, so we can all kind of work on challenging some of these, some of these topics. So let's talk about that. Like, what are some special considerations that this cohort might need? So there are, there are a couple, um, you know, I already mentioned uh, in terms of having body issues. So um, a lot of times you'll see you know, binge, purge, restricting behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, you know, this is, a, you know, in some cases this is presenting for some of the classic reasons that you might see, you might see some of these symptoms. Um, maybe there's an element of control um, in an otherwise very uncontrollable environment. Sure. Um, you know, teens are uh, typically really, really struggle with control. You know, mm -hmm. they are a population that ultimately has almost no control over their environment, mm -hmm. their daily activities, they their want it education. So badly. <laughs> they want it so badly. Yeah. <laughs> but um they are, you know, they're pretty much at the mercy of, you know, of 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 Absolutely. their yeah, of their families, yeah. mm -hmm. of schools, of you know, whatever the, the structure is. Um a lot of times they have to come to program and they don't want to. Yeah. So, you know, it's something that they they may struggle with. And so with eating behaviors, that is something that they can control. And that's something that can be quite a comfort. Mm -hmm. This also comes up if you are specifically, um, specifically working with a cohort that is experiencing like gender identity, um, gender identity, I don't want to say concerns, but let's say like gender identity exploration, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, identifies as a different gender identity than what they were assigned at birth. Part of what we know is that, you know, I get a lot of pushback from parents uh, at times because um, when they have, you know, their kids who are at PHP, IOP, and their kids are saying, oh, well, you know, I use, you know, these these mm -hmm. pronouns, which may be different than what you had originally given me, or right. I identify with this gender different than what I was originally assigned. Um, a lot of parents can kind of see that as, well, you know, you're you're confused. You don't really know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and part of what you know research shows is that 
um, a lot of times, you know, kids generally do have a pretty good idea of their gender identity or gender differences um, as early as, you know, we've seen as early as ages like three or four. Um, so, you know, a lot of times the kids who, you know, come come in, um, they may be really struggling to take back control in a situation that they have been trying to push back against for, you know, years by the time they make it to, mm-hmm. you know, to my office. Mm-hmm. Specifically, when we have uh, kids who identify as trans or somewhere on the transgender spectrum, um, I have seen a lot of particularly like restricting behaviors. Um, Mm. Oftentimes, uh, this is something that happens very um, significantly in the community generally. So not not just at, you know, not just something that I've seen at this site, but um, something that does occur um, kind of throughout, um, you could say kind of throughout like the healthcare model. Um, part of this reason, part of the reasoning for that is because um, these teens are trying to do what they can to delay the onset of puberty. Um, mm-hmm. For a trans individual, puberty can be significantly traumatizing. Um, there are gender clinics that um, that exist uh, where you know there are providers, there are doctors, there are endocrinologists. Um, you know, there are sexual health professionals who specifically work with, um, with the, you know, these populations um, because it is, it is such kind of a fraught road. Um, if your body is trying to change, you know, biologically, chemically, hormonally in a mm-hmm. way that is, you know, deeply against, deeply opposite to what you know and deeply in opposition to what you feel to be true, you know, it can in some ways feel like almost a betrayal of your body. It can mm-hmm. be incredibly, incredibly traumatizing. So when we have uh, kids, particularly who, you know, for example, maybe they have families who are not sure if they want to investigate, you know, avenues of hormone blockers or getting in touch with an endocrinologist. Maybe they feel like their kid is too young to really know um, what the right thing to do is. Um, you know, you have children who are in some ways forced to deal with um, forced to deal with the circumstances of mm. their bodies mm-hmm. um, and the way that they uh, end up doing that is by uh, trying to restrict mm. until their bodies are not functioning in the in the normal developmental ways that they should so are you saying that you oftentimes see restrictive eating behaviors because that can kind of hijack the body's natural progression to uh, like through puberty? Um, yeah, I mean, I see this, yeah, I see this primarily, I'd say with, um, like transgender, transgender male, Mm -hmm. uh, patients. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, born biologically, uh, female, but transitioning to male. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of times the intention in restricting to that degree is, yeah, is delaying the Mm -hmm. onset of, um, you know, hips, breasts, the onset of menses, um, in the hopes that if they can push off these things, um, maintain sort of like a child, a childlike, more kind of androgynous physical appearance, right. that will be more in line with their gender identity mm-hmm. and presentation. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see how that kind of complicates the clinical picture, right? Because you have sort of all that depression or, you know, whatever primary issue they're coming in with, but then you also have sort of the secondary eating disorder behavior to to also consider and worry about. So that's sort of one one additional 
that's one additional dimension when it comes to this population. Um, what else? What else do you notice? We may also notice, you know, in the LGBT community, um, a lot of times there is a lot of secrecy, you know, um, for their for their relationships, for how they're kind of conducting their business. Um, you know, I've had kids come into our program who, um, you know, it's it's not uncommon for us to have kids who come into our program who go by one name and set of, you know, gender pronouns when they're in program. Mm -hmm. And then when their parents come to pick them up or when their therapist is communicating with the family has to use, you know, a different name, you know, their mm -hmm. birth name and um, pronouns that adhere to what their family knows. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of secrecy, there can be paranoia, um, mm -hmm. you know, there can be um, a lot of difficulty with teens trying to access, um, at times, like digital communities, um, in which mm -hmm. they're, you know, as they're accessing digital communities, uh, they may be, um, there may be digital spaces where they feel like they can be a little bit more freely themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but when their parents find out about it, um, is a real problem. So yeah. there's a lot of kind of manipulating technology that can happen. You know, I've had uh, youth who have, um, you know, entire relationships, um, sometimes starting at, you know, kind of developmentally appropriate ages, sometimes a little bit sooner um, than, than we might prefer to see. Um, and these are happening in total secrecy, unknown to their families. Mm -hmm. Um, because it may be a same-sex relationship. Right. I was thinking about what you were saying about um, all the secrecy and really what that, what I would imagine is underlying a lot of that secrecy um, is either A, shame, or B, a feeling of um, not being safe, right? So, yeah. um, you know, my parents will freak out or they'll, they won't love me anymore. Or, uh, if they find this out, um, because if there was no shame or there, there wasn't sort of that, um, that fear of maybe abandonment or, you know, even fear of like safety concerns, um, there would really be no need for secrecy. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, that's just kind of how I'm, thinking about it like why would there need to be secrecy uh and that's kind of what i look in my clinical experience this is what i've um come across mm -hmm. uh but is that sort of your experience of it as well yeah yeah i think um you know sh shame is an element safety is an element um i'd i'd kind of add on to that that it's not only about, you know, the shame and safety mm -hmm. around, you know, the, the individual, you know, like our patient, um, but also their partner. Um, so, mm. you know, their, you know, romantic partner or, you know, the person they're involved with um, is also contending with these factors in their own lives. Right. Good point. Um, so like wanting to keep, keep things secret for the sake of that person. You know, we know from a developmental standpoint that your teenage years are very much all about developing social relationships and maintaining social relationships with peers specifically with peers specifically right, yeah. yeah yeah um and we also know that you know we had, we'd kind of referred to this a little bit 
earlier in our conversation, but when we have um, you know change happening in any one direction, right? Social change mm-hmm. will have kind of an opposite effect as well. Um, and so what I've seen uh, happen at times too um, is really kind of a quite a significant presence of bullying happening. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And this kind of bullying can also be something that uh, necessitates some of this shame and secrecy. Uh, you know, just just you know whatever whatever is pushing really wanting to be very, very discreet about this exploration. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not only from families that they're experiencing this sort of stress, it can also be um, in their peer community as well.